BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. I am merely Mark Ellis, and I'm thrilled to have Jacqueline Coley, my co-host on the show, as she is every week, not just because she's great, but because Jacqueline gets to talk to goats, man. Jacqueline, you just interviewed the Williams sisters, and oh, by the way, Will Smith was there, too. Yeah, it is not a bad Sunday. If you're going to work on a Sunday, talking to the two greatest tennis players to ever grace this planet is not a bad way to go. And they were lovely. It was such a great opportunity. I am so grateful to the folks at Warner Brothers because they are executive producers of the new film, King Richard, which we will not have to be finding out if is Rotten Tomatoes wrong about because it is totally beloved by everyone that's seen it so far. It's a great film and they were so lovely to talk to. Oh, I want it to be good. Yeah, it's really good. And, And Mark literally... Mark likes me, ladies and gentlemen, but he never texts me as quickly as he did after he saw that post. Like, if there was ever yeah, time. <laughs> I couldn't because because I saw it on a Sunday and I also saw what happened to your football team on Sunday. So I, I wanted to let you be in your own space. And I thought maybe you set up that interview just because you knew what was going to happen. But that's a conversation for a different day. If we're talking <laughs> about the greatest of all time in a sport, I would say Venus is the greatest tennis player. Excuse me. Serena is the greatest tennis player that ever lived, but Venus is way up there. And if you're looking at shark movies, Jacqueline, then maybe Serena Williams, if she's the Jaws, yeah. I, I will get there, then maybe Venus is the deep blue sea of tennis players because that's the movie we're talking about today. That's the point of this diatribe is that deep blue sea is our movie and we have a very special guest who stars in the film as Dr. Susan McAllister. Saffron Burroughs is going to be joining us here in just a little bit. Deep blue sea came out in 1999 and it's rotten. It's it's that rotten movie where it's like Spaceballs. It just needs a few more reviews to be fresh. It's 59% on the tomato meter. And even more curious is the 39% rotten audience score. I don't get that at all because, well, we'll, we'll talk about our feelings about the movie when Saffron joins us. But um, Jacqueline, if, if you want to tell us what Deep Blue Sea is about, I guess now would be the time to do it. I know there's sharks. Anything else we need to know? I mean, that's pretty much it, but I will go ahead and give us a quick breakdown. So Deep Blue Sea is the story of these genetically modified Mako sharks, which are being genetically engineered by this 
a pharmaceutical company out in the middle of the ocean. And essentially what it is, is Saffron Burrow's character. She's a doctor who is hell-bent on trying to find a cure for Alzheimer's. It is something that she holds near and dear to her heart. Samuel L. Jackson's company is funding her endeavors, and they have been getting a ton of bad press because a couple of the sharps sharks has escaped. And along for the ride to sort of wrangle these sharks, they have their shark wrangler played by Thomas Jane and an entire ensemble cast of both doctors, researchers, and also their chef, Preacher, played by LL Cool J. And yeah. needless yeah, needless to say, you can't have a shark movie without the uh, likelihood that the sharks may escape. And essentially, where these guys are located at is slowly sinking after a horrific plane crash because they've been told if they can't get these sharks to be harvested, they're about to shut everything down. Revelations come out that make us realize that these sharks are smarter than the raptors in Jurassic World, <laughs> Jurassic Park, and they are coming for the humans as they try to find a way to make it to the surface and escape. And we sort of follow them along their underwater adventure of trying not to get eaten by sharks. LL Cool J is there for his great quips. Lots of people get eaten. And uh, Charles Jane is wet, along with everyone else for most of the story. So win in my book. Uh, it's a huge win on multiple fronts, and it's a win for the audience here. Even if you haven't seen Deep Blue Sea, look, I'm going to tell you to pause this and go watch it, and I might yeah. say that again later, but like, you can listen to our conversations. We're going to spoil everything. We're going to talk about the big surprise scenes, and oh my God, I can't believe that happened. We're going to get in, into this with Saffron Burroughs, but I think you can listen to it, and then you can go watch Deep Blue Sea later and still have a great time watching it. I'm just saying, there's a whole lot of carnage to enjoy, so... Without further ado, we're going to go to Tim Ryan, who's our expert review curation manager here at Rotten Tomatoes. Tim is going to be telling us what the critics were saying about this movie way back in 1999 when it was released that summer. So, Tim, have at it. When it comes to shark-tastic entertainment, nearly everyone can agree that if Jaws represents the pinnacle of the form, and if Sharknado is the subgenre at its campiest, then Deep Blue Sea is smack dab in the middle. And the middle is where the critics found themselves as well. Some enjoyed it as a fun action flick with a sense of humor, while others derided it as a substance-free knockoff of other, better monster movies. Deep Blue Sea is rotten at 59% with 113 reviews, and it has a 39% audience score. So what did the critics have to say? In a rotten review, Keith Phipps of the AV Club wrote, Deep Blue Sea, a sort of cross between aliens without the thrills and the Poseidon adventure without the camp compensations, doesn't deliver the killer shark versus A-list character actor thrills you crave. In a fresh review, David Starrett of the Christian Science Monitor wrote, it's just the thing for moviegoers wanting violent adventure, split-second editing, and enough water-drenched cinematography to make Titanic look parched. The Rotten Tomatoes critics' consensus reads, Deep Blue Sea is no Jaws, but action fans seeking some toothy action can certainly do, and almost certainly have done, far worse for B-movie thrills. So that's Deep Blue Sea. And if you're interested in a movie that's this movie's exact opposite in every way, I suggest The Deep Blue Sea, starring Rachel Weisz in a certified fresh drama with zero sharks and a whole lot of heartbreak. Back to you, folks. <laughs> well, thank you for that alternative to the shark movie with The Deep Blue Sea, Tim. I, look, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback these, these things, especially when it's, you know, over 20 years later. But can't we just have some fun with some sharks? We're about to have some fun right now with our special guest. Let's bring on the one, the only, Saffron Burroughs. 
And as promised, the star of Deep Blue Sea, Saffron Burroughs, is joining us. Not just that, you can currently catch her in season three of the hit Netflix show, You, stage, screen. You recently played Jackie Kennedy at the Annenberg Center for the Performing Arts. You, you've done it all, Saffron, but now we get to sort of look at your career full circle and go back to that sweet, sweet shark movie that is somehow not quite fresh on the tomato meter. First of all, thank you so much for joining the show. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's a big deal, not just for Jacqueline and I here and for a lot of our listeners, but our researcher who puts together all these great statistics and interviews from the past from Deep Blue Sea for this episode, Mark Hoffmeyer. Not only is he the biggest Deep Blue Sea fan on earth, he actually has a podcast dedicated to breaking down and talking about Deep Blue Sea. And so he's he's a lifer. He is really, really excited about this. And I do have a couple of questions from that, Mark, that I want to get into. But first off, I, I want to start with the question that everybody gets asked when they join the show, because it's called Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. So it's 59% rotten on the tomato meter, and it's 39% rotten audience score Saffron, is Rotten Tomatoes wrong about Deep Blue Sea? So I could make a case for it. Um, <laughs> having 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 rewatched it recently, I was impressed with the uh, I was impressed with the pace of it from the start. I watched it with a friend yesterday and who hadn't really seen it, and they were, you know, in the first ten minutes, a lot happens, and you meet these characters. I love the ensemble nature of it. Obviously, there's wonderful actors there. Some last longer than others on screen. Um, but the pace of it is, it's, I think that holds up. That stands the test of time. So, and also the, I, I mean, I love a film where you, in the first 20 minutes, get to know people. You get little snippets of people's lives and histories. And there's a life they create there. You know, obviously there's a community that is really enjoyable. Um, and the first act of pure violence doesn't happen immediately. So you're kind of in this kind of glorious, just here we are meeting people thing and then boom. <laughs> so I was, I was pleased that it, it seems to stand up. Uh, it was made quite a while ago and it's, yeah. it's kind of, it's pretty exciting still. I think there's it something sounds... that surprised me watching it again. Um, it, uh, there's, there's quite a bit of religion there from LL Cool J's character. <laughs> and by the end he has us all pre pretty much you know praying for our lives but yeah there's some there's some things that stand up uh I, I was curious to see you know a lot of films from 20 or 30 years ago have a sort of inbuilt sexism that just wasn't questioned then mm -hmm. and uh things I loved as a kid I I look at now wow that was was pretty full of stereotypes you know i think they try to avoid too many of those in this i'd love your thoughts what do you think i i mean i'll i'll, I'll leave it to jacqueline first but we we did mention in our in in our little pre-show warm-up when jack and i were talking to the audience that jacqueline and i love to talk about the movie in depth and so our audience knows that we're probably going to be spoiling it but we should we're reiterating that right now that we are going to spoil the movie Deep Blue Sea and all of the fun surprises and all that stuff that happens in it. So if you haven't seen Deep Blue Sea yet, again, maybe you want to pause this and then go check it out and then come on back. Jacqueline, it's 59%. Sounds like Saffron thinks it should be fresh. How about you? Yeah, I mean, it's almost fresh. And it's one of those weird ones, too, it's where it has, it has an audience to it, but the audience score, I don't think, reflects it because it is just this 
gooey camp goodness and also a really like taut thriller too. It, it mashes up a lot, I think, together. But I think Saffron touched on it. The opening, look, everyone goes into this movie thinking that it's going to be some either page from whatever of Jaws, like you, that's the ultimate shark movie. And by having that opening, they're like, okay, double the fun. We're going to get two couples. <laughs> but they subvert the opening of Jaws where the girl dies and they mm-hmm. actually get saved. And you have Thomas Jane pop in as like the ultimate. Hero. Yeah, the ultimate hero. The one thing I will say to it is, look, I had not fully seen this movie until we were getting ready for this. I'd seen most of it like through clips, but this is the first time I really sat down, watched the whole thing. And the only thing I have to say is the that Colin Trevorrow owes the entire Jurassic World to this movie because <laughs> Jurassic World is deep blue sea. You, you uh, Saffron is the Bryce Dallas Howard character. Tom Jane is the Chris Pratt character. They ripped off this movie for a billion dollars. And I say wow. that with love. I literally was like, this is Jurassic World. This is Jurassic World. Wow. <laughs> Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I don't remember the first time I saw it. I, I remember renting the movie. I, I didn't get a chance to see it in movie theaters when it came out in 1999. And y'all opened against some stiff competition. I mean, you still had mm-hmm. Blair Witch Project in theaters. Probably The Phantom Menace and The Matrix were on their last legs. But you had this little horror movie called The Sixth Sense that was coming out around that time, too. Yes. And so it was a lot of competition. So I rented it. But I, I literally do remember sitting in my living room at my, at my, my parents' place and standing up in shock when that moment with the shark jumping out and just chomping Samuel L. Jackson. And it's like, what what the hell just happened? It was one of the cooler <laughs> moments I've ever seen in, in a movie because like you said, the pacing up to that point, it's it's so it never feels rushed, but mm-hmm. it just it just moves. It's such it, it's the John Wooden UCLA basketball coach quote, be quick but never hurry. It moves, it moves, it moves, but we do get some time to know our characters. And so Mm -hmm. as I guess my first question, before we get into like the, the scenes that, that still speak to you, your experience when you're making the movie, because it's directed by Rennie Harlan. He, he was coming Mm -hmm. off a, a disastrous run with, uh, with, with Cutthroat Island. You know, he had some nice hits leading up to Cutthroat Island. And then that happened. And I'm sure was just such a, a tough, break for him in his career. So he's trying to rebound with Deep Blue Sea. There's a lot mm-hmm. of moving parts. There's a lot of people. There's mechanical sharks. What was it like for you as the lead of a film like that when you were making it? 
Well, it was it was quite a shift. I, I was in London and Rennie had seen me in something, um, maybe audition for something else. And they said he, oh, they loved, he'd love to meet you and they, the studio would love to meet you. So they flew me to L.A. just for the meeting. Um, meanwhile, I had some kind of surreal, cliched L.A. experience as soon as I landed. Some <laughs> dodgy guy in my hotel invited me to go bareback riding on the beach. Which, you know, like every, every cliche took place the moment wow. I landed. And it was, I was, you know, I went to school in Hackney and I was from like a strong community of socialists and feminists and activists. And I suddenly uh, there were these surreal kind of Sunset boulevard things occurring. But I was very drawn to when I went to meet um, Akiva Goldsman and Rennie and uh, Akiva's the creator and, and he, he wrote films like A Beautiful Mind. He was a beautiful writer. Um, and then they told me in the room that Sam Jackson and Stellan Skarsgård had already committed to the film. And they were, you know, probably the two actors on screen that I held in the highest esteem at that time and and pretty much still do, you know. So having those two fine, fine people in it already was just thrilling, you know, to have to sort of tell a story like this, which is obviously intended for a wide audience and then tell it with really fine actors. And then the ensemble they gathered. I just remember coming away from the meeting thinking, my goodness, that, that I want to work with those people. You know, there's Aida Totoro and Jackie McKenzie and Michael Rappaport and LL Cool J, who was my hero when I was 11, had his poster <laughs> on my wall. Um, it was a beautiful ensemble. And I don't, I think that's unusual for a sort of an action thriller movie to have such a, such a cast. So that was my, my main impression was I came and met them and, they told me who was in it. And I remember showing up in my kind of little leather shoes and my cardigan. And I read the scene for everybody. And then they said, oh, my goodness, we have to scrub you up. So they, you know, put me through this kind of machine of clothes and hair and makeup. I was I'd never really been I'd never been in a film like that before, you know, where they sort of present you to the studio and say, here she is with a bit of powder on because I, I just turned up in my cardigan literally. And um, it was quite funny. The, the process of preparing oneself for such a role to, for Thomas Jane and I, especially because we just had to do uh, uh, quite a bit of physical labor. You know, it was, it was six months of six days a week, you know, wake up. There's a kind of a little ritual I told my kids and they think it's just wild. You, you know, we shot down in Mexico, you wake up, uh, they had a tanning bed in there that they'd had for Leo DiCaprio for Titanic. Um, <laughs> so you had to do workout, tanning bed, hair, makeup, all by, you know, 5.30 a.m. or something. So it was like this little boot camp for Thomas and I. Yeah, it was like a little military operation because because I did read, uh, Jacqueline, this was one of my, my favorite parts about the the research that, that Hoffmeyer put together for us is that Y'all shot in the same huge water tank that James Cameron had built for Titanic. And so it was a lot of those sets, except this time you have the benefit of every performer's dream with a bunch of mechanical sharks swimming around there, too. So <laughs> being in being in that tank with the sharks, it, it, are the sharks realistic enough that you're actually afraid of them on set? Were you friends with the mechanical sharks? Were they better <laughs> behaved than the one Bruce from Jaws? I mean, it, what, what's it like being in a tank with sharks? They, I mean, you were warned not to uh, not to sort of break protocol because they were, ironically, these mechanical shots were pretty dangerous. They could move fast. 
Yeah. Um, and if you got in the way of them, it wasn't a good idea. So it was that itself was a little bit perilous. Just they were on these tracks, obviously, rushing through the water in certain shapes and, you know, choreographed designs. But they were this huge metal robotic machines that could, you know, you could fall into their path. And that would be a bad way to go with a mechanical shot taking you down. So there were, there were I mean, we, <laughs> we were filming in these tanks, with, which they created for Titanic. And it was built to look as if you're in, in the middle of the Pacific, not obviously just at the edge of the Pacific on Baja, California, just off the coast. And um, it was seawater. So it was pretty cold. It was literally just fresh seawater. And then they felt for us because we were cold. So they built a sort of huge hot tub adjacent to the tanks. So between setups, they'd be lighting stuff. We'd all jump into this hot tub and warm up and get back into this very cold seawater. I was just going to say what I've learned from watching behind the scenes of Abyss and also of Jaws is forget about animals, forget about, you know, any other kind of things on set, children, water is literally Waterworld, The Abyss, Jaws, they all talk about how difficult it is to film with that as a medium because of how unpredictable it is and how it messes everything up. But it seems with this movie, they kind of got it right because like the joke on Jaws is they called it flaws because the shark didn't move. Like half of the brilliance (laughs) of Jaws was because they couldn't get the shark to move very well. And so they kind of had to like pull it in certain ways. So the reason why you never see the shark is because they couldn't get the shark on screen. But these sharks are fairly visible and it's not just all CGI. So I'm guessing they kind of got them very functional uh, for y'all's mm-hmm. filming. Mm-hmm. They did. I think uh, at the time, other shark experts said that we did good sharks. <laughs> the little bit I know about sharks. Um, I was supposed to swim with sharks the way Thomas Jane does. Um, I'm officially not allowed to scuba dive, so that didn't happen. I was quite relieved. Um, <laughs> Thomas is down there, you know, with, with swimming with sharks with just, a, you know, some metal between them. But I was told our sharks were pretty, pretty good. I heard I, I read an interview with some marine biologists that said that Mako, the, the look of the Makos was accurate to a real Mako shark. And it's also the wise choice to make these antagonist to be the smartest shark that is in the water, which is Mako's. And then obviously the genetic engineering, thanks to someone like you in the movie, sort of enhances that even further. But the last thing I want to ask you before we actually get into all of our favorite scenes, because there's so many to Mm -hmm. choose from, is that one of the I I, I read a story about a test screening that went Mm -hmm. great, but not necessarily for your character, that there was a test screening And the fans loved it. But the only issue was that the fans said, well, we're not sure that Saffron's character should make it out of this movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they like you had to go back to die. Like, this is ridiculous. (laughs) Like, they literally were like, she has to die. How did you feel when you get that phone call to be like, "Okay, (laughs) we need you? The first so the first inkling I got that it was not going to go in, in my character's direction was this test screening in New York. It was actually sort of an audience. It was a public audience and they were shouting at the screen, expletive, 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 die, you know, <laughs> asterisk, asterisk. What? Every time I showed up and uh, I, wow, I, I thought I was playing this altruistic, rather fantastic person who was doing this groundbreaking research 
Um, and then when Sam Jackson came on, this woman shouted out, like, oh, let's see what she shouted out. It was very sexy and very admiring. And um, so I realized quickly who was who were the baddies. And I oh. naively, you know, when you're when you're young and you're playing someone and you you want to believe in their goodness, you know. So this this screening in Times Square was quite shocking for me. They literally oh. were booing at me as I would pop up on screen. So I did understand why they'd made this change. Originally, we shot a scene where LL Cool J, Thomas Jane and I survive and we we're in a lifeboat and Brenny Harlan was in a helicopter above us with a camera and we had walkie talkies. And at a certain moment, we spot a ship, a huge ocean liner that rescues us. Um, the, the boys with me got seasick, so they took... Uh, you know, anti, anti queasy medicine, it made them very sleepy. So we were in this little blow up boat with the walkie talkie. And obviously, you know, it was hidden beneath us and someone would call out action. And I think both the boys, Thomas and LL were almost napping because they were so <laughs> sleepy from this medicine. So I, we were in this tiny rubber dinghy and I'm kicking and going, action, action. And, um, we do this sequence and, uh, Rennie loves, Rennie Harlan loves the loudspeaker, a loud halo. So he, even if he's not in a helicopter, he, he you know, on a, <laughs> on a set like this and a shoot like this, you sort of need a bit of, you know, you need some volume. Mm -hmm. So he, he liked to call me safe cat because that was, he called me street cat because that was my rap name when I was a kid. So he nice. found out that I was a rapper and I was street cat and my friend was street dog. So he goes, <laughs> Okay, street cat, go for it. And then he'd talk you through the scene. And he, so I was street cat for the whole shoot. So there was this rescue scene that we shot. And then, yeah, I got this phone call saying, um, we don't feel um, that you should be surviving this. So we've had to go ahead actually and shoot a quick um, moment with the body double in a pool in LA because um, we had to do it fast and you're in London. So oh, wow. that's what we've done. Oh, oh yeah. I, it, it's it's almost like you as Saffron Burroughs were going through the same thing that your character was because you thought you were doing good in the movie. Yeah. But then it turns yeah. out that not everyone felt the same way about it. So <laughs> You know, what's funny, though. It is a testament to your acting because I get yeah. the altruism, but I think it was that full force altruism and in the wake of the destruction that people couldn't deal with. You know what I'm saying? Like it wasn't I think that they dislike you. It was just more like there were so many characters that perished. Yeah. They just had to like that like she's got to get it too. Like everybody's gone through it. The bird died. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. bird didn't have and, anything to do with it. And I see now I watch it again think wow, I, I, she's focused in a way that's that's alarming for all yeah. the other humans on board. There's a there's a blinkered focus that's Bit concerning yes yeah yes. the bird the, <laughs> the poor, poor bird, bird. Yeah. yeah you yeah. never kill the dog in the movie but the birds eh, 50 50 at best so um i, I want to get into some of the scenes that we all love from the movie because we all obviously i i also think the rotten tomatoes is wrong it's one of these movies that is right on that line of demarcation it's 59 percent. if it was 60 percent, it'd be fresh and so i think it deserves to be even higher than that simply because the task at hand it's like everybody knows that jaws is the shark movie so how do you do one that separates itself from jaws one of the ways that this does it is you have the surprises like when stellan gets his arm bit off or when sam jackson gets completely bit in in a hole um mm -hmm. but 
my one of my favorite scenes in the movie is that that horror like setup where Thomas Jane's character has to swim and he, he's got to go take care of some stuff. But then the sharks are smart enough to start turning the lights on and off and turning the cameras on and off. And it just becomes this like haunted house, even paranormal activity type thing where we don't really know who to trust. But we realize that the sharks are just as smart if not smarter than us. I mean, I, I watched the movie again this week and it just, I got chills during that scene all over again. It was just so much mm -hmm. fun to watch. And I imagine seeing that in the theater, it's just, it's just gotta be torturous in the most fun way possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. Those, those moments where they create the notion that they're actually also, they are organizing collectively yeah. against the humans. That's really something when, when, when he's in um, when he's in that tunnel and and it becomes clear they're attacking simultaneously mm -hmm. and the sort of metal tunnel he's swimming through, um, I think those moments are fantastic. And I'd forgotten how the notion of them planning together and in some ways sort of freaking the humans out and then also recognizing a gun and swimming away from it, and swimming backwards. All those all those incremental buildups they have, uh, I think very smart because you you know you assume sharks just go for blood but they're plotting yeah it's like your it's like your jurassic world raptors jacqueline yeah I, <laughs> it is very much like that abdominus rex like like it is it is right there again colin trevorrow i i feel that rennie has a very good copyright case <laughs> against him because <laughs> the blueprint is there Absolutely, for sure. I, I, I don't know. I guess if we're going to talk about scenes real quick, and this mm -hmm. is not just because I love him, but like they really gave LL Cool J the hero's arc of this because yeah. like, first of all, the fact that he was the cook, um, his name is Preacher. He's a man of faith, literally in every aspect of this. You um, instantly want him to succeed the minute you see him talking to his parrot and the parrot's like eating the frosting off of his finger. Like you immediately, mm -hmm. I'm like, this dude better make it. And mm -hmm. the scene with him in the oven, mm -hmm. as unbelievable as all of that is, it's absolutely ridiculous. I was so, so there with him in that moment. And that's mm -hmm. the reason why no matter what, even the idea that Every other person, when they get in the in the mouth of the shark, is eaten instantly. <laughs> but for some reason, LL Cool J like makes it in and then makes it out. Like I I don't know how they made that decision that he had to live, but I was I I was very worried because I didn't remember who lived or died in this. And then the minute I saw him like get grabbed by the shark, I was like, no! I was like legitimately <laughs> upset. So yeah, everything LL Cool J did, but especially the him breaking out of the oven scene and then roasting oh. the shark for all he was worth is a fave. The other scene is brilliant. Yeah, even though you know it's pretty incongruous, you completely are there with him. Um, I agree. It, he, I feel he's the eyes of us, of the audience, not my character. He's the eyes of the audience and he's so human. And also he's a civilian. He hasn't caused any of this trouble. He's, he's the chef. So he's completely innocent in the whole situation. And I love that he survives, but I had the same feeling. I thought, wait a minute, doesn't he survive? And then he's got his crucifix out and he's. 
it, yeah. it was very horrible. I mean, yeah, he and 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 he has so many scenes where, again, you're just on the edge of your seat watching it for you, Saffron, when when you go back and, and watch Deep Blue Sea again or or maybe the first time you got to see the finished film at the premiere. What was the scene that really stuck out to you as, as far as either something that you genuinely enjoyed watching just as a fan or the one that really got a rise out of the audience? Well, I, I love LL Cool J's journey because I think we do see everything through his eyes. Um, a woman, I was at a screening last night for Belfast and a woman came up afterwards and said, why don't we get to find out how he makes the perfect omelet? Um, when are we going to discover that? Hello. My name is Sherman Dudley. And if this message finds you, then I did not survive. So this is my legacy. I have loved the pulpit and I have loved the bottom. I did my best to be a good husband, a father. I came up wanting. So what do I have to say to you? What mark do I have to leave behind? We will begin with the perfect omelet, which is made with two eggs, not three. Amateurs often add milk for density. This is a mistake. So I love that stuff. I mean, particularly memorable in terms of filming was um, when we're trying to strap Stellan Skarsgård to the sort of gurney and get him onto the helicopter. And uh, this huge waves are spilling over us. I actually got knocked under that night. The guy who was timing the waves I guess look the other way. So what? he had these dump tanks of water. It's, it's funny because these things are incredibly sophisticated in many ways. And some of it comes down to just a guy with a cigarette who's dumping tanks of water on you. So um, just the timing went a little bit wrong and I got knocked under and Rennie thought I was doing this marvelous sort of underwater <laughs> acting stuff. And I, I whacked my head on the metal um, sort of pier, the jetty that we were walking on. And uh, one of the actors pulled me out, Samuel Jackson pulled me out. And um, Rennie didn't realize that it was not entirely just me improvising fantastically. Um, so they were, they were kind of these, you know, physical moments on set, I'm sure for all of us, for every actor, and I'm sure for every stunt person, where you feel the elements and what Jacqueline was saying earlier about working with water where you really feel it. You know, that moment where LL's in the corridor and that water just breaks forth and he's, I mean, most of that, you know, all, all of that we did, either us or a brave stunt person was there doing it. The Thomas Jane stuff is wild. You know, when we're, when we're leaving the laboratory and the water's sort of chasing us up the stairs and he's crashing around and sliding around. I think, oh God, this guy's really, you know, he really went for it in an impressive way. He is what every guy wants to look like when they get out of the pool because he's got like 30 shots in this movie where he's just got that, like he's just coming out of the water and he's just like abs and just pecs for days. And we're all, yeah, that's the guy. That's who you take me to the doctor. You take me to whatever person can just make me over. That's who I want to look like eventually. And he gets a little bit of a hero journey in here too, but it really is. I mean, again, rewatching it, it's LL Cool J's movie. So big shout out to LL Cool J, not just for surviving both this and Halloween H2O, which is both miracles, but he also, have you, have you heard or have you seen the lyrics for his deepest blue sea uh, yes. tune that he did? 
It's yeah. so good. Jacqueline, do you have a favorite quote from Deep Blue, from Deepest Blue Sea? Well, first of all, they kept the um, the religious imagery over through the song. And yeah. like the second verse is, Our Father who out in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Killers swarm to beasts, swallowed them in flames. Like, seriously, though? <laughs> bars. Straight bars. Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Killers swarm beasts, swallow them in flames. They switch my DNA, flip me to cool J. I can't fight the feeling of force to kill brains. I love it. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and he kind of turns into the like now he's telling the story from the perspective of the shark. It's real. I, I highly encourage everybody yes. to to not only check that out, but also as far as Deep Blue Sea, there's some great facts about the movie that I've been provided from again, a guy who literally does a podcast on Deep Blue Sea. The sharks have a ton more screen time than mm -hmm. pretty much any other shark movie you'll ever see. 13 minutes and 37 seconds of screen time for the Makos. And I do have a question that our researcher, Mark Hoffmeyer, wanted me to ask you because he's watched this movie more times than mm -hmm. any other human or shark on Earth. And Legit. he wants to know if you have any insight as to, <laughs> he wanted to know why was Ronnie Cox cast in the movie, but didn't have any lines because Ronnie Cox from Beverly Hills Cop and RoboCop, he was yeah. he's in the movie and he lends that presence to it. But Mark Hoffmeyer was confused as to why he didn't have any lines in the film. I remember him having lines when we shot it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you know a com enough said. <laughs> yeah, I remember a conversation. But now, now I've had I've dipped my toes into the directing world. I see now yeah. how how every moment needs to earn its keep mm. and not not because an actor's not brilliant but just because the narrative needs to push forward and push forward so i and now understand a little more if i do have something cut that i've performed okay i see why the story didn't need that so anyway that's perhaps lends itself to an explanation but yes yes just can i go back to ll on the wrapping oh, because because his track, I Need Love, I don't know if you remember, I Need Love. So everyone in my school was just singing that rap when it came out. Yeah. Is it under the under the bed? You know that one. So um, so in the evenings, Jackie McKenzie, who's a brilliant actor from Australia, she's a really good cook. So we all lived together in this sort of compound in, in about 20 minutes from the studio in Mexico. And uh, so Jackie would cook. I don't know what, what was I doing? Maybe making salad or something. And LL would sit at the table and just write lyrics. And I thought, this is heaven. That was like oh, just a Tuesday evening. It would happen oh. all the time because we, we only had us. You know, that was our whole community was just us. And Stellan, actually Stellan Skarsgård had, you know, his many children and his wife with him. So that was fun too. because It was like a sort of real family feeling. Wait, but the wait. rest of us were sort of, are you saying Alexander Skarsgård was on set and Bill Skarsgård was on set of Deep Blue Sea? Oh, yes. Kids. They were wow. they were like little kids, you know, bobbing in and out of the sea. And yeah. <laughs> Who okay. would have thought that one and day that would rapper, grow up to be Pennywise? would live next door to me and he loved to play rap at three in the morning. I'd be like, listen, I'm a woman. <laughs> I'm in makeup in a minute. And you're, you haven't gone to bed yet? So we had, he was so sweet because when he apologizes, he's adorable. So I'd be knocking on his door in the middle of the night, like, listen, I need, I need to sleep for my little three hours before I go into the works, this kind of military operation that I have ahead of me. So we had this strange kind of 
college-like atmosphere with everyone living in these apartments next to each other. You got to be so so busy with all the, the projects you're working on right now and being a mom on top of it. Do you ever get to catch up with any of the other cast from Deep Blue Sea? Have you, have you ran into LL Cool J recently? I haven't seen LL for a long time. I see Stellan sometimes and Jackie and, um, and Sam, Samuel. Yeah, I'd love, I'd love a reunion. That would be really good. Well, regardless of what the critics said or the audience score, there's two things mm-hmm. you can take from the film. Two of the best reviews about it came from Roger Ebert, the incomparable, iconic uh, wow. critic, gave it like a rave review. And and also, because it has so many horror elements, not a bad person to like it was a Mr. Stephen King. So I, oh. I would just say if your fan club is maybe a little bit different than what people expected, the movie made money, uh, it's memorable. You still have people literally last night coming up to you talking about, you know, things from it. I think <laughs> yeah. I think you can rest in, in that assumption. And it's funny you mentioned the um, the fact that you dipped your toes into directing because your film actually premiered in my home city, the Austin Film Festival. Uh, yeah. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Because I'm curious, you know, you've done so many mm-hmm. things. Does directing really sort of scratch an itch you're, you're anxious to keep doing? Or, or how do you feel about it now having having tip, dipped your toe into this this pool? Yes. Thank you for that lovely question. I, I was thinking about it for quite a while. And then a friend came to me. She'd written this piece of work called everything I ever wanted to tell my daughter about men. And it's a woman. It's, it's quite dark. It's a woman who was abused as a kid. And then it's her relationships with men that took place subsequently. Some are funny. Some are not so funny. Um, and I directed two of the short films within the feature. So um, I was very fortunate because I got to offer roles to actors that I know and love. And so Jason Isaacs did, did one of my shorts with me that went to Austin um, and he's a brilliant actor who you, you guys have probably spoken to. And, um, and then I was, I, I just, because this project was for charity, it was to support survivors of violence and abuse. People just said yes to it, which was really a treat. So I asked Sia to do some music for me and write a song for it and went to record with her. What a beautiful experience. So I, I had this fantastic time just on these shorts and now I'm, then now there's some longer projects that I'm involved with. I'm producing one for uh, a friend of mine. She directed the first feature by a black British woman 30 years ago. Um, oh, wow. And it's, I'm, I, that's actually my first film that I was in as a teenager. Um, and so now she's come full circle, like she's raised kids and, and now she's going back to that world of directing so i'm producing something she's written and directing which is brilliant about racism in los angeles and i'm directing myself other couple of other projects i really like that i'm attached to you know they're they're at the beginning stages financing and finding people but i do i was reminded last week i directed marianne jean baptiste in a short film she was brilliant and she turned up and just played this role and I was in heaven. So I, re- I was reminded just last week how much I love it, how the thrill of, of when you have a DP you trust and someone in front of the camera that's very talented and you're shaping it with them, you know, shaping the images together. It's thrilling for me. 
It's even more of an honor than that you're here on our show because you sound busy. Like the, yeah. the fact that you had the time to come and talk to us about Deep Blue Sea, it just, I mean, I, I feel like a great award has been bestowed upon me. First of all, if, if, <laughs> if there's only one person that you follow on the 4th of July, make it Jason Isaacs because he always tweets some joke about his, his role in The Patriot, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> but then, uh, Saffron, you also, you're, you're in season three of You, which is, which is this this monster hit on Netflix. And without, I guess, spoiling the arc too much of what happens in season three, what can you tell us about your character in that show? Yes, I play uh, a role I'm reprising from season two. I'm the mother of Love Quinn, played by Victoria Pedrati. I play Dottie, her mother. And um, I guess in season two, you learn a little bit about this world that Love Quinn's come from, which is sort of wealthy hippie world a little like the characters on white lotus when i watched that it it reminded me a bit of the quins sort of privileged <laughs> but pseudo pseudo hippie privilege mm -hmm. um and so uh, <laughs> in season two you learn a little bit about dotty and the husband and the wealth and also the fact that they cover up violence that her daughters committed without giving too much away and then in season three um I'm divorced and I'm in the middle of a breakdown and, you know, the beautiful boy who's, who's died, the, the character's son has died. And so I've got nothing to lose, but I do also think Dottie Quinn believes that her tiny baby grandson is this reincarnation of her, of her son. Yeah. So I understand grief, you know, grief takes you in lots of different directions. So um, what's lovely about the role they've written is, She's got nothing left to lose, really, except just a, there's a couple of things she still can hold on to and care about. Um, so that's sort of what you see. It's a little bit of a Tennessee Williams character. You see her unraveling. I, I watched season three, um, a couple, like basically I had it in my preview center and I started it and I finished it a couple weeks ago. And the thing I, it struck me about it, which is that we've seen mothers like Dottie before, um, somewhat narcissistic, controlling, and not necessarily that they don't, it's not that they don't love their daughters, it's just their love comes with a cost and there's always mm -hmm. like a transactional nature to it. But what I found interesting about Dottie is so many oftentimes with these characters, they try to redeem them. They try to like, you know, in Lady Bird, that mom ends up being a good mom by the end. And I think although Dottie has moments of truth and, and moments where she puts it herself out there to say to love what she needs to do, I really liked how they did not try to make her into some you know, misunderstood mother. And she just lived in her truth of like, you know, not all moms are going to have their, you know, I would say a sitcom happy ending. And this show was okay with living with the fact that like, no, she's not a horrible person, but she's also not the best mom for this particular person. I'm curious how you mm -hmm. felt about being able to portray a character like that. Because again, not irredeemable, but mm -hmm. they don't try to redeem her either. Mm-hmm. I love I love that they don't try to redeem her. The fact she survives, so many people don't survive that show. Mm -hmm. I love I love that she survives and I love that the baby um heads in the direction of safety. Um and they've cast it really well. You know, there's some fantastic actors in this this season and um there's some surprising there's there's a lot of surprises, but there's a there's an exploration of Silicon Valley and wealth and privilege and all of those things. But she, she's utterly, it, she, it seems that this character is utterly truthful all of the time and, and lives by her own 
personal moral compass mm. and some of it skewed. But also she's been surviving in a world where the only way when she was a kid to get by was, you know, I worked out a whole background for her, of course, and she came from a rough place and had a difficult start and then married into something that was safety. So she, she, she got stitched up early on, I think. And so playing someone who, who is offensive and unpleasant and uh, aggressive and, and can be violent and can be prickly and difficult. I, I embrace that. It's lovely, you know, and I recognize it in humans around me and, to have some empathy for her. Any chance that we get to see Dottie again, possibly in season four? I hope. I hope Dottie shows up in Paris and does something dramatic. There could be um, some revenge factors. Yeah. Yes. I yeah. hope. I hope Dottie shows up. Yeah. Not to spoil <laughs> too much, but if there is anybody that would be looking for Joe in season four, I have a feeling it would be definitely Dottie. So I'm yes. with you on that one. Um, I, I'll just add this and it is a, it has been great to chat with you today, but I'm not kidding. Uh, this is not an easy comedy to get, but this is my circle of friends DVD that I've had since wow. 2000. <laughs> and it, it, because this is like a kind of like a box office movie, but also kind of uh this is like HBO. So like it was mostly on TV. So this is a hard commodity to come by. I've been a fan since then and all the way through with all your stuff from like the bank job and Mozart in the jungle, um, it was really a treat to chat with you. And I've I've now forgiven Nan for trying to steal. <laughs> I'm so her. impressed that you have a copy of that. Yes, really it's a, it's actually a difficult DVD to to have, and like it's one of the old old ones. Um, and I read yeah. that novel too, which the the movie is very different from the novel in a lot of ways, but it's yeah. uh, but it's still great. So much yeah. appreciated. And everything well, comes full circle. Because the one thing I remember about Circle of Friends is mm -hmm. seeing the poster outside the movie theater I'd go as a kid. And I remember seeing the name Saffron Burroughs and the name Chris O'Donnell on the movie poster. And Chris O'Donnell and LL Cool J are now in that whatever that NCIS or whatever on CBS together. So yeah. everybody yeah. runs in the same Circle of Friends eventually. <laughs> Very much so. I'm so isn't glad that, you survived the show. Isn't that interesting? That's, that, I've been thinking about that casting, putting those yeah. two together. It, but it's I like brilliant. That. I mean, that show's like seven, eight seasons deep. It's very popular. Yeah. And and like, yeah, I it's a, it's not a just, you know, whatever show. It's a very popular show. Um, yeah. Before you get out of here, though, I know that you're a busy mom and you have a lot of stuff going on. But I also know that you really love film and, and, you're, and you're a storyteller. Do you have mm -hmm. any recommendations for us for anything that we should be watching or looking out for? Well, I'm a little slow to things because my youngest is so young. So I literally just watched, for example, A Promising Young Woman, which I thought was pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and everything Michaela Cole does, I adore. Yes. Um, yeah, I May so Destroy fans, You, you know, is crazy. I May Destroy You and um, her previous work, Chewing Gum. And I, I, did, I did completely binge watch Normal People and Ted Lasso because it's so relaxing. <laughs> 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 They're so sweet. My God. Um, the, the idea that masculine toxicity can be softened at the edges and people can learn and grow, you know, it seems to be at the heart of that show. And I, I love that. And there's so much humor in it. But I, maybe if you want some more unusual recommendations, my favorite films from the last kind of 
20 years are, you know, they're a little more off center, less commercial. No, those are great ones, though, too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and I actually I got a chance to see that movie. You you were you were into a screening last night or recently, Belfast, and that's great oh, too. Oh, that so. was beautiful, Belfast. My goodness, yes, I sort of went to sleep and dreamt about it. Um, I have a family in Belfast, and uh, but it, you know it's such a universal film. It's this little yeah. boy just seen through his eyes, and he's living in a pretty much a war zone, and he's nine, and and it's just his. His innocence is crumbling away. It's beautiful. And, and that kid is so good. Love. He's so, so good. good. Yeah. He's so good. Very and good. So, He's so good. I mean, look, that should be a nice lesson to everybody who is a regular listener to our show, our, our fresh members of the Ketchup crew, that even I, Mark Ellis, can enjoy a movie that A is in black and white and B does not have Mako sharks that are super smart. So if I can do <laughs> I'm it. I'm so glad. But you just know, about they should, anyone actually, can. They need to have you on the poster saying that. <laughs> that is a quote, ladies. We and should gentlemen. contact. We should contact Kenneth Branagh about that quote. Yes, get this um, pull yes. quote. Yeah, all on board. But you know, a quote you could retroactively put on the poster of the DVD jacket for Deep Blue Sea is the one, the blurb from Stephen King himself, because Jacqueline mentioned Stephen King was a big fan. Stephen King. This was the first movie that Stephen King saw after he almost died. He got hit by a car going for a walk. And he almost died. So Stephen King's quote was, my first trip out after being smacked by a van and almost killed was to the movies. It was Deep Blue Sea, as a matter of fact. I went in my wheelchair and loved every minute of it. So that is the master of horror giving a big cosign to Deep Blue Sea, as does our expert researcher, Mark Hoffmeyer, has a podcast about Deep Blue Sea. So I'm so glad he got to do his research and inform us, and we got to talk to you. Saffron Burroughs, Dr. Susan McAllister in Deep Blue Sea, and so many other great roles now doing great things behind the camera, producing projects. It was a treat to have you on Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. Thank you so much, Saffron. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you both. All right, Jacqueline, that, those are the kind of interviews that you love having because it starts at Deep Blue Sea and it goes to all these different places. But the bottom line is this. You and me need to find a way to go <laughs> cage diving with sharks. Am I right? Are you in? Uh, no. <laughs> will, you, will you hang not. out on the boat? Just hang uh, out on the boat. Oh, absolutely. If When you get eaten, I want to be able to document it for sure. <laughs> Whore. Absolutely. We're, uh, we're, we wouldn't be friends if I wasn't there for you in that way. But no, I'm not I'm not getting in the water like what LL Cool J says in this movie about Samuel L. Jackson getting caught in the in the avalanche. That's the way I feel about all of this. He's just like, brother, what are you doing here? And I'm not going to be that person. I will be there for you in support. All right. Well, you'll be the preacher. I guess I'll be a mix between Thomas Jane and Saffron Burroughs. We're not sure if I'll survive or not, but it, it was such a, a treat to have her on. Uh, yes. Thank you again to Saffron Burroughs. And make sure you all check out You Season 3 as well as her film project she's working on. Again, two shorts that premiered in Jacqueline's pretty much backyard, the Austin Film Festival. Indigo and Michael are the names of them. And um, just a, a real treat having her on. We we love doing a mailbag. We, we haven't had mailbag in a couple weeks, but don't worry. Keep writing those emails and you can let us know what your what your comments, what your thoughts on movies we've already talked about, or you can recommend movies that you think that we should be keeping an eye out open for. That email address is RT is wrong at RottenTomatoes.com. And as always, you're listening to us in podcast form. You can subscribe or rate, review, whatever your platform of choice encourages you to do. We encourage you to do that as well. And also check out Deep Blue Sea. Jacqueline, next week, 
I don't even know if we're allowed to say what, what we have going on next week. We've had to do these vague teases, but it always pays off for the audience because we get some pretty cool guests. Yes. And I I know we will definitely have a certified fresh guest that you guys are going to be very excited to talk to. So that's all I can say. But their selection of their film has not quite been uh, been pinned on yet. But needless to say, you should look forward to it. We've had some amazing guests on the podcast recently. It's just a matter of which which one's coming out next. And it might be one of the stars of a hit show on HBO. Okay, I've might already be. said too much. Might be. <laughs> I've already, I've, I've overstepped my bounds. So I'll simply say thank you to Saffron Burroughs for joining us here on this walk down memory lane, or this swim down memory lane, as it were. Our engineering team here of Brian Perez, producing Lucy herself, the entire squad at Rotten Tomatoes, my co-host who, again, gets to speak with the greatest of all time, Jacqueline Coley. That certainly wasn't the case today as far as her co-host, because I am just Mark Ellis. You can get tickets for upcoming live shows, including DC, December 16th through the 19th at markellis.live. That is at that Jacqueline, and we are out of here. We'll see you next week, everybody. 